This is Dylan FM, the podcast that goes deep into the work and world of Bob Dylan. If you love Dylan, you're in the right place with your host, Craig Danuloff. When rock and roll emerged in 1955 and 56, Bob Dylan was 14 or 15 years old. His birth was perfectly timed to get the full force of Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly. Who better than a teenager to take notice, to be influenced, and to have the time and energy to really listen and learn? In today's episode, we dive into exactly what Bob Dylan likely heard and how it appears to have showed up in his later work. We're discussing Bob Dylan and rock music, continuing our walk through one of the most celebrated of all Bob Dylan books, Song and Dance Man, with its author, Michael Gray. Today, we're looking at Chapter 3, which is called Bob Dylan and Rock Music. In earlier episodes, we discussed Chapters 1 and 2 and learned how Dylan learned from and used folk music and then the world of literature. In each, we've been shown clearly how Bob was influenced by whom and what he did with what he read and heard. And today, we'll learn those same lessons about how a young Robert Zimmerman took what he heard on his AM radio in Hibbing, Minnesota, and used it to become the force we know as Bob Dylan. One small example. Did you know that the way Bob stretches and bends words to make rhymes that would otherwise not be there was a technique that he first heard from Fats Domino? I didn't. But Michael walks us through the history of popular music at the time in a way that tells us what is, I think, an interesting new story about the formative years of Bob Dylan. As you move through this episode, we'll hear excerpts from the book, often talking about the specific characteristics, styles, and skills of some of those early rock and roll innovators. And then we'll talk about how those examples resonated or were later applied by Dylan. Our guest reader for this episode is Minnesota musician, author, and broadcaster Paul Metza. Paul has his own book about the recording of Blood on the Tracks coming out later this year. And you can find links to his work and more and more about him in the show notes. Chapter 3 and our conversation today ends with a discussion of how Bob Dylan contended with and reacted to and managed the process of being a rock star. Like everything else he did, as you'll hear, he took the smarter and road less traveled. The book we're discussing, Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan, was first published 50 years ago. It was revised several times over the years and grew to over 900 pages, and it's just been put back in print. You can order Volume 1 of the 50th Anniversary Series at Amazon in paperback or on Kindle. Convenient links are in the show notes. Now, here's our discussion of Chapter 3 from Volume 1 of Song and Dance Man. All right, Michael. Chapter three, after our forays into folk music and literature, chapter three digs into rock and roll. The chapter starts with a bit of a history of rock and roll, and I think you're making a point about the world Dylan grew up in and the things he might have heard and and so forth. Why don't you share with us a little summary, if you will, about that? Rock and roll, I think, came to mean something different to us all, maybe, than you're implying it meant at that moment in time. Well, I think when when um, when Bob Dylan first heard rock and roll, it would have been in 1955 or six. I mean, that's when 
that's when it arrived. I mean, you know, we know now that Elvis recorded That's All Right in July 54, and that uh, uh, Little Richard recorded Tutti Frutti in 55. But uh, for most people, most people, it certainly didn't arrive till 55. And uh, I'm not sure that Elvis's That's All Right could really be called rock and roll anyway. I mean, no one knew what to call it at the time. This is one of the great things then, you know, uh, that no one, no one went into a studio, well, certainly no one young, went into a studio saying, I want to make, uh, you know, uh, a radio smash or an adult-oriented rock sound. There were none of those categories, you know. There was kind of easy listening, light entertainment, horrible, horrible stuff, you know, crooners and all that, lightweight jazz and so on. But anything that anyone young and uh, in the sort of generation of Elvis and Little Richard and uh, and Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly, anything they were doing, who knew what to call it? You know, there's an interview where where Elvis is asked if, uh, how, what do you call that stuff? Do you, is it is it uh, bebop? Bebop. And Elvis says, well, I guess, you know, nobody knew. In other words, the whole thing was completely wide open. The first time that anyone started trying to put uh, DJs into, into a box and tell them what they had to play was in 57 in the States. But, you know, when all this erupted in the mid-50s, there were 6,000 independent radio stations in the USA. And, uh, and, you know, some of them had very local audiences only, like, uh, I guess, the ones that Elvis first was played on in Memphis. And others had huge, powerful speakers so that Bob Dylan up in Minnesota uh, could apparently listen to uh, a station coming from uh, Texas. So, you know, uh, God knows what he heard, but, uh, but we know some of what he heard. But, yeah, I mean, rock and roll became pop and pop became rock music. That's the very general way things happened, you know, from an explosive start where all the grown-ups were saying, this is disgusting music, and uh, and it just breeds street violence and teddy boys and punks and so on. Those things those things were really raw two-and-a-half-minute records by, by very young people, not always men, uh, you know, Vanda Jackson, uh, for example, belted out, let's have a party. Uh, and uh, Brenda Lee was Brenda Lee was pretty good uh, as well when she was very, very young. And I think she started at 14. That was a sort of tut-tut, let's try and ban this stuff. That was the response that got. And so uh, gradually, by the end of the 50s, that had been squeezed off the airways more or less completely. Uh, in terms of radio anyway, and radio was the only thing that mattered apart from actual record sales. And it was radio that allowed people to hear what records they wanted to buy. So by 1960, it was a lot prettier and softer and it was it was just, you know, pretty boys, Bobby V. There, a lot of them were called Bobby and, and, and Johnny. And they were just, you know, singing singing stuff with pizzicato strings behind them and uh it was it was different it was safe it was okay to have on the radio and in britain it was uh, particularly welcome that you could have british cover versions of these american records 
when I say welcome, I only mean by the BBC, which had a monopoly on who could hear what, because um, certainly no sane teenager wanted to hear Scylla Black singing You've Lost That Loving Feeling when they could hear The Righteous Brothers. But that's how it was. And then out of that pop music, as people grew up and the 60s exploded and everything uh, everything went druggy and liberated and open, then pop music became rock music. And there was certainly a point in the early 70s when records by people from the mid-50s, people like Fats Domino, that felt far more passé and old-fashioned by about 1970, even though it was only from 15 years earlier. Far more passé and and let's not admit that we ever bought far more like that than that than now when, you know, thank God we're allowed to like anybody, however old their records. Going back to the the 1960 timeframe, because it's interesting, and I think something I'll talk about later, you know, Bob sits conveniently or, or well in a lot of timelines. So as you just described, he got to hear that mid-50s explosion and the raw versions before it got, you know, cleaned up. Yes. Um, and, and in fact, in the book, after that introduction, you will listen to our first passage, which is uh, something you say about, about Bob right at that time. At this point, entered Bob Dylan. Sometime the previous year, he'd been playing harmonica in a Central City, Colorado strip joint, and in December 1960, reached New York City, guitar at the ready, and still listening to everything. By this time, too, he must have soaked up all the cumulative residue of skills in lyric writing, as well as in music of Presley, Chuck Berry, and Domino. So this sets the stage for the bulk of this chapter when you, like you did with folk and, and literature, kind of cite specific examples and, and look at what Bob took um, from, different, from different folks. There's something a little bit misleading in that passage in that, you know, it, it sort of implies that Presley wrote material too, which he didn't. But that aside, yeah, um, it seemed to me, you know, I mean, the thing is a lot of this chapter is inspired by my own remembering how it felt to be 13 or 15 and latching on to all this stuff, you know. There's quite a few paragraphs in this uh, where I talk about um, feeling loyalty towards people, feeling protective towards uh, these young rock and rollers. And, um, you know, obviously that's an attitude that um, you grow out of. You replace it with a more mature appreciation of their work. <laughs> but it was certainly there, you know. You know, in the same way, at that point, I absolutely loved Fats Domino, for example. And uh, one of the things I really loved about him was the way he pronounced things and could rhyme things. You know, he rhymes the word man with the, with the word ashamed, for example, in one of his songs. You know, now... Obviously, he has a very New Orleans accent, and I didn't know much about different regional American accents at the time. But certainly, there was something particularly rock and roll, something particularly young and modern about the way that these people messed about with the English language. 
in their pronunciation and in their rhyming, uh, like that Buddy Holly bit about uh, somebody wants you to do the car, somebody else says, what do you want it for? It's uh, it's something that the older records didn't do, you know. People before rock and roll, vocalists were supposed to sing as clearly as possible and to enunciate precisely, you know, and that's one of the things that makes most of them sound laughable now because it's so formal. It's so, you know, pull your finger out and get real, you know. Also, as Dylan shows more than anyone, it, it takes a tool out of the communication arsenal. It makes it neutral all the time. Yes, that's that's a really nice phrase, actually, that you've used. Uh, it does take a tool out of the arsenal, and uh, and it's one of the it's one of the tools that Bob Dylan has uh, pioneered more than anyone. But you know what I'm saying here is that uh, it wasn't just people like me who relished the way Bats Domino or, or Little Richard or any of these people pronounced things and rhymed things. But uh, I'm quite sure Bob Dylan, young Bob Dylan up in Minnesota, must have loved that too. Because, uh, you know, for him as well, all ears, he uh, it was part of the antidote to school. It was part of the antidote to, um, I don't know, the, the locked-in traditional family that he was part of, too. Yeah, well, let's listen to a section of the book of this chapter, chapter three, where you specifically talk about Fats Domino and what Bob might have taken from him. What Dylan did gain from the years up to 59 were lessons learned from Fats Domino and Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly, relatively specific things from highly distinctive artists. Fats Domino taught white pop fans about idiosyncratic flexibility in lyrics, particularly in rhymes, through odd emphasis, a Dylan trick, and odd pronunciation. In Domino's good-hearted man, he manages by his accent and his disregard for consonants to make the word man rhyme with a shame. No mean feat. Yes, uh, the way he rhymes half sick and traffic is is an example that he's that he's taken from those people you know it's a great thing that he does with words obviously people people talk so predominantly about uh about the words he uses people talk less about the way he pronounces them and and forces them to rhyme if he wants to uh, you know the most the most dramatic ones get a lot of attention but there's so many subtle uh, you know, orphanages and things like that people go on about, but there's a, a thousand more yes. little Absolutely, twists. Absolutely, yeah. The uh, the most spectacular one really is rhyming, is in uh, Groom Still Waiting at, at the Altar, I think, where he rhymes January with Buenos Aires. Yeah, oh, and it's fantastic. And, he, and he, completely, he completely pulls it off too. I mean, it's just marvelous. Yeah. And, and that, I think the, the fun thing about this chapter and them all in their own way is, is connecting that back and saying, hey, look, there was this guy, Feds Domino, who he would have heard at the perfect time, you know, a few yes. years before this and um, who did this. And, and again, as we talked about in the last chapter, it's not something Bob made up from whole cloth on his own. Sure, of course. And also you have to remember that, uh, you know, 
as part of part of what shows us how much attention he paid to all that rock and roll um and and took from it is the fact that you know he had an electric guitar before he sold it to go into folk music it is another interesting thing relative to the simplistic view of Dylan that that he that he started in folk and came out versus a more complex view where folk was a uh an aberration for for a short period of time or or an opportunistic thing that that was what was happening in the village and so he played that game because that was the game that was being well, played I, I don't i don't think it was just uh, opportunistic though i mean i think that um if he was still listening to the radio in in you know 59 and 60 he was hearing the soft boring pop that had replaced rock and roll on the radio he was hearing you know send me the pillow you dream on by johnny tillotson that sort of that sort of stuff and clearly for him being a very bright guy this was this was not enough and when he heard when when uh, when people like john pancake played him folk stuff up in minneapolis st paul uh, you know, he uh, he heard that there was far more in it than one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock rock, you know, as well as far more in it than uh, send me the pillow you dream on. Yeah, well, let's look. The chapter then goes on to another uh, pre-1960 influence on Dylan, uh, Chuck Berry. Uh, let's listen to a, a few paragraphs you wrote about the two of them. Dylan also took over Barry's manipulation of objects and the details and ad-man phrases that surround them. There are plenty of equivalents of that cherry red 53 in Dylan's rock songs. Dylan doesn't go in for the masked place names. Barry parades so generously, although there is one song less characteristic than just interesting, which crams in all of the following names. It's the unreleased wanted band, California, Buffalo, Kansas City, Ohio, Mississippi, Cheyenne, Colorado, Georgia by the Sea, El Paso, Juarez, Shreveport, Abilene, Albuquerque, Syracuse, Tallahassee, and Baton Rouge. It's also true that Dylan could never have written a song like Tombstone Blues without Chuck Berry, nor especially could Subterranean Homesick Blues have come into being without him, either in its musical format or its words. It needed Berry's too much monkey business first. That one, that's that's a spectacular example. I mean, half of um, the Chuck Berry song sounds very plodding and old-fashioned um, and has done for decades now. But the other bit, the bit where he lists all the awful tasks he has to do in his boring job, that's that's what Subterranean Homesick Blues takes and flies with, you know. Uh, I think, you know, if I can remember it, Chuck says uh, he's working in the working in the filling station. Uh, too many tasks. Wipe the windows, change the oil, fill the tank. Whatever. Um, and, and and Dylan expands this from having a tedious job to uh, having a tedious life. You know, get born, short pants, romance, learn to dance, all that. I mean, the one comes very directly from the other. And actually, the Berry song, um, 
I'm slightly unfair to that in thinking it's just about his job, because actually it isn't. There's more in the lyrics of the Berry song than that. But, you know, Dylan, Dylan, Dylan takes that and runs with it, and he runs brilliant way with subterranean homesick blues. Yeah. But Berry, you know, Berry is an exceptional rock poet. The way he fits words and music together, he does it more, more straightforwardly than Bob. He doesn't have to manipulate the syllables so much. There's a great precision about the way that the words fit the music in Chuck Berry songs. Even, even when he comes out of prison in 64 and releases Nadine, it's just so beautifully constructed. Most people, if they went back and tried to make rock and roll records in the 60s, 63, 64, they were never nearly as good as they were in the 50s when they made them in the first place. But Chuck Berry was. Chuck Berry's Nadine is just brilliant, the way, the way the words fit the music. As I got on the city bus and found a vacant seat, I thought I saw my future bride walking down the street. I shouted to the driver, hey, conductor, you must slow down. I got to see her, please. Let Volume me one of the new 50th Nadine. anniversary series, which is called Language and Tradition, is available now at Amazon in print and on Kindle worldwide. We're going to do a bunch more of these podcasts, continuing to walk through the book. So dig out your old copy or order a new one. There are links in the show notes to buy one at Amazon. If you're hearing this, you're listening to the public version of this episode. There's also an extended version. They're usually about twice as long, available to FM Plus subscribers. You can sign up for just $4.99 a month and get the full version of this and all of our episodes plus member-only episodes as well. And to make it a great deal, that one price covers all the podcasts in the FM Podcast Network. You get extended editions, bonus episodes, and full archives for all of our shows. Plus, your subscription makes these great episodes possible. Subscribe right in the Apple Podcast app and get the longer episode right now. Or if you use another podcast player, visit fmpods.com to sign up. Did you enjoy this show? Then please rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps. And take a moment to follow this podcast so you don't miss upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening.